Let me open us with the word of prayer to follow Charlie's, that is. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the privilege of knowing you as God and as our Father. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension. We thank you that we have a mediator, we have a savior, we have a friend, we have a king. That I pray, Lord, that as you opened the minds of your disciples on the Emmaus Road to understand your scriptures, to cause their hearts to burn within them, that you would do so for us today as well. Your word does not return void, Lord. It accomplishes the purpose for which you've sent it. So open our minds to understand, open our hearts to adore and receive. We pray this in the name of King Jesus. Amen. If you look at your bulletins already, or if you, uh, you know that I'm going through the book, you've probably already seen we're in Hebrews today. So I invite you to turn with me or scroll with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. We've obviously finished chapter 1, and we're looking at the first four verses of chapter 2. Um, as I'll point out later in the message, this is the first of several warning passages which are in the book of Hebrews. Uh, there, are, there are many in the rest of Scripture, but this is the first one that we get to in Hebrews. This will be Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4. This is God's word for God's people. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the word of the Lord. Well, our passage today starts with a therefore, uh, telling us that this is a thought or a topic that's linked or continuing from the passage preceding it. It seems fairly obvious. Um, the author of the book of Hebrews is saying, because of what I've just said, what I've just told you, this next thing follows logically and reasonably. And the Bible is full of these connecting or linking words, words like therefore, since, for, but, likewise, which we really need to pay attention to or else we can um, occasionally completely misunderstand the meaning or the significance of the passages that we're reading. In fact, many of our favorite Bible passages that we like to memorize or slap on coffee mugs uh, begin with one of these, these, uh, uh, these linking words, and they're, they're, we tend to make them snippets removed from a larger context, like pieces from a puzzle or shards from a stained glass window. So for example, we all know John 3, 16, for God created, uh, excuse me, for God so loved the world. That's following something that Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. First Peter 3.15, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy. First Corinthians 15.58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Those particular examples I gave you are fairly understandable on their own, but it is important to recognize their authors are continuing on something that they've been saying for a while. There's a teacher I like to read and listen to who says, never read a Bible verse. He always says, read the chapter, read the paragraph, get the context for it. So why am I telling you this? 
Well, because books like Romans, which we're also studying, books like Ephesians and Hebrews contain sustained themes or arguments that run throughout the whole book. And when we play cut and paste with the text, we fail to understand what God the Holy Spirit intends for us to understand from his holy word. So for example, uh, I believe it was last week, we're in Romans 9. Romans 9 continues on from all of the rest of the book. Paul's been building this whole argument and he gets to Romans 9. We can't just jump into it without understanding what's come before. This is one reason why it's very important to preach expositionally, which we do here, which is through a book or having the, the text determine what the sermon's about. And I didn't decide what today's topic was going to be. It was the next verse in my text. This is part of why uh, we do this, is to understand context. There's a passage in Hebrews chapter 6, which we'll get to eventually, uh, which has caused no small amount of theological confusion and misleading for the simple reason that folks have failed to start at the beginning of the paragraph and read to the end of the paragraph. They just take the passage out of the middle and, and they run away with it, and it's caused a lot of confusion. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have read in the preceding verses. And what has been the topic of Hebrews 1, the verses preceding our passage? Well, if your subject heading in your Bibles is the same as mine over chapter 1, it says, the supremacy of God's Son. The supremacy of God's Son is the main topic of chapter 1. More specifically, the author of the book of Hebrews is comparing Jesus Christ to previous revelations of God, to angels, to the Mosaic Covenant, to delivered at Sinai, and he proclaims Christ to be superior. And he's going to continue this throughout the rest of the book as well, because recall that one of the, uh, the contexts for Hebrews, the historical context, is that Jewish Christians were thinking about denying Christianity and reverting back to Judaism. So the author's trying to say, you've gained so much more in Christ. So he's already launched into it and said, Christ is better than anything that we've seen before. Any revelation, he's better than the angels. He's better than the previous covenants. Christ is superior. In chapter 1, Christ is declared to be the creator and the sustainer of all things, the radiance of the glory of God, He's the heir of all things. He's the one whom the angels are commanded to worship, the one whose throne endures forever. He's the ultimate revelation of God himself, being God himself in human flesh. So having explained and demonstrated these truths through the first chapter, which were the previous three messages that I gave through Hebrews, which I sell for $20 if you want a copy, uh, the author then says, therefore, after all of that, he says, therefore, therefore what? Verse 1, therefore, this is verse 1 of chapter 2, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Therefore, given all of the supremacy of Christ, everything we've read, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. In this verse, God the Holy Spirit tells us we must first <clears throat> pay much closer attention, second, to what we've heard, third, lest we drift away from it. The readers are not just to pay attention or not just to give heed to the message that we've heard, but they're to pay much closer attention to it, much closer attention to what we've heard, to the Word of God, to the message of the gospel of the grace of God, 
the great salvation, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, the good news that Jesus Christ died to save sinners, the wondrous message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's been slipping our minds. It hasn't been the first thing that we think about in our order of importance. You know, Jesus told us to seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. But we've been seeking other things first while the message that we've heard is in the back of our minds like that winter coat that we keep forgetting about. We still like it. We think we still might need it sometime. And we notice it when we open our closet doors, but it's not in first place in our attention. So we begin to ignore and to neglect it. You know, every week, and it's actually Sunday, so I've got this waiting for me. My smarty pants iPhone has the nerve, the impudence, to inform me what my average screen time was per day during the week. And I, I see those numbers and I think, I'm paying far too much attention to this thing. And you wonder what's so important that I'm spending that much time on it, especially since most of it's just me getting beaten in online chess by Miles and Logan anyway. May a curse rest on their heads. But, oh, this is on, oh, sorry. Okay. Um, most of our headspace, most of the things that occupy the surface of our minds are secondary things which are important, they can be very important, but they're not the most important thing. The most important thing is the message that God has given us through his word. And do we pay anywhere near as much attention to God's word as we do to our devices? Are we putting things in their proper order of importance? And if your Bible told you how many hours per day on average you're spending in it, would it come anywhere close to your device? Of course, if you've got a good Bible app, it might just be able to do that for you. <laughs> or is it, are we spending as much time on the Scripture as we are with our, with our streaming service? Or to how much time we spend online shopping in, or in stores shopping for you know, that one thing you're still looking for that's going to bring you peace, comfort, and joy, but just for some reason endlessly seems to elude us. Jesus said, life is more than food and clothing. He, he wasn't the, the secular humanist. He understood that there's more. There's more than food and clothing. He said, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You know, there's a um, T-shirt, a guitar T-shirt, and it's just a stick figure with all this, this guy with all these guitars, and he says, who has the most guitars wins. I'm like, what does that even mean? Win what? Your, your life doesn't consist in the abundance of your possessions. There's no profit for a person who could gain the whole world and yet lose their soul. The Apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, that the heavens will pass away with a roar, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and all its works will be exposed. So everything is going to be burned up in the end. Imagine the house fire, everything that you have made out of paper. If you had $1,000 in your mattress, it's gone. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? We focus on things which can't last, often at the expense of things which will last for eternity. Remember that uh, missionary, I can't remember whether it was uh, Jim Elliot or Nate Saint, he said, he is no fool who gives up what he can't keep to gain what he can't lose. He died in the mission field. He didn't think he lost anything because what he had gained is for eternity. Or 
Are we too worried about the state of the world and spending too much of our contemplative hours worrying and being anxious and forgetting the good news of salvation? Is it easy to remember how good God is? Is it easy to remember that he's in charge when the world just seems like it's losing its mind? Have we lost our confidence that God is sovereign, that he is in control, and that ultimately every person on earth will have to stand before him to be judged? That we have a, a culture which really for, focuses on persons and personalities. You can't turn on any news or TV or any kind of medium without having somebody being um, lauded and somebody else being you know, told that they're the devil incarnate. You know, whether it's Donald Trump or Joe Biden or AOC or the My Pillow guy, just like these guys are just all over the place causing a lot of anxiety for different folks. And Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body and then after that can't hurt you. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus said, don't worry about these guys. What's the worst that they can do to you? What's the absolute worst that anybody can do on this earth? What can God do? And who should you be focusing on and thinking about? Now, it isn't necessarily for the recipients of Hebrews that were us that we're deliberately ignoring God's word, that we don't want to see it and we're, we're putting it aside from us. It's just that other things often crowd for our attention and we set God's word aside. I remember when I, my last job, I worked for an orthotics company called Superfeet, and I had to be at work at 7 a.m. or 6.30 a.m. For, for 10 years. And so if I wanted to do any guitar practice, I had to wake up at 30 minutes early to practice. But after a while, I realized, you know, I should be substituting, you know, the guitar practice. I should be reading my Bible instead. So I had to wake up earlier to do it. But you had, I had to deliberately make the decision, I'm not going to do this so I can do that, because things crowd your mind. There's things which take your time, and you have to say, I'm doing this. I have to be disciplined with this. We are really distracted with life, really distracted with all of its cares, all of its woes, all of its glitters, and all of its busyness. And we're overly familiar with the gospel and tired in our faith. At Superfeet, I worked with a young man who was part of a cult. His, his uh, mom said she was God, so was, they were pretty far down the line. I said, well, why, uh, why don't you guys study the Bible anymore? He said, we already know it. Um, they already know it. They don't need to bother with the Bible because they're so familiar with it. And we often, maybe we don't go to the extreme of thinking your parents are God, no matter what they tell you, um, but we so often can be overly familiar with Scripture. We think we know it, and so we don't have to, have to read it anymore. Yet for those of you who are diligent in your Bible reading, how many times have you read some, a book or a passage that you've read a million times before and it's like you've never even seen it before because God is opening your eyes to something new to it? We get overly familiar with it and we get tired in our faith. And so we, we what? We drift, or we begin to drift rather. We aren't outright rebelling against the gospel and against God's word. We just leave it in the closet too long. We neglect it. But like a boat at anchor in Port Townsend Bay, things happen when you, ne when you neglect. But most of us have lived in Port Townsend long enough to know what the beach can look like after a windstorm. And there's usually a boat or two that's dragged its anchor and drifted onto the beach. And sometimes onto the rocks where it was destroyed particularly down by the mill. They, people like to anchor out there, and then the wind comes up 
and blows them on either to this soft sandy beach or onto the rocks right on the Larry Scott Trail, and there's just nothing but fiberglass left. But if the owners had been alert and not negligent, if they'd cared about their boats enough not to, uh, to, or to pay more closer attention to them, they wouldn't have let their boats drift toward the rocks. And that's what the author is talking about in this text. Drift leads to destruction. And the word drift used here is meant in the sense of a boat drifting away with the current. And it's not necessarily throwing off of its moorings and speeding away. It just drifts away through neglect, like the people that don't know how to set their anchors and they drop it straight down to the bottom. Your boat's not going to be there in the morning. But this drifting, we can't imagine it as the kind of lazy drift down the river we like to do in the summer. This drift is like the boat that drags its anchor and is demolished on the rocks, or like someone asleep on a boat headed towards a deadly waterfall. You start off on this river in New York, and you don't realize that Niagara Falls is at the end of it. You fall asleep in your canoe. It's a drift toward certain, not possible, but certain destruction. And one commentator wrote, do you realize that if you do not pay attention to your spiritual condition, it will deteriorate on its own? Do you realize, given the corrupt nature of this world and of your heart, that you naturally become dull and then dead and spiritually, steadily believing the lies of this evil age? Without giving heed to the spiritual resources God provides, your heart will revert back to greed, avarice, sensuality, and malice, all those characteristics that define our natural state in sin and lead to destruction. We are, in another sense, we are, really are like in a river in our spiritual life. You can't stand still. We're either moving forwards or we're slipping backwards. So, therefore, pay closer attention to God's word, to the gospel, to the message that we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Move to verses 2 and 3a, the first half of verse 3. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Verse 1 of the passage we're looking at is kind of a theme, uh, the main message of the passage. And the author states his warning and his admonition right in the beginning. Don't neglect it or you'll drift away. And in verses 2 and 3a, he's presenting an argument from the lesser to the greater of why we should take the gospel message so seriously. And he's using the old Mosaic covenant as his example. So remember that the author devoted the whole first chapter of the book of Hebrews to declaring the supremacy of God's Son which included a section showing the New Covenant's superiority over the Old Covenant. This is a theme which he'll hit again as we continue through the book of Hebrews. The covenant instituted and mediated by the Lord Jesus Christ is greater, is superior to the covenant declared by the angels at Sinai. So the author's argument goes like this. Under the Old Covenant, people who broke God's law were justly punished. In Numbers 15, a man was stoned to death for breaking the Sabbath. Why? Because God had spoken, and though the law was mediated through angels and through Moses, it was absolutely binding. 
And eventually the law breaking and the covenant breaking and the ignoring of the Lord God by the Israelites led to their whole country being annihilated by the Assyrians and the Babylonians in different stages. They were punished because of their transgression and their neglect of God's law. Thus, the author's argument goes, if people were punished for breaking the old covenant, which was inferior to the new covenant, how much more will we be punished for neglecting the superior covenant? Christ is greater than the angels, and under the message delivered by angels, every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution. So how much more severe will be the judgment on those who reject or neglect the greater covenant, the greater message delivered once for all by the Lord Jesus Christ? We have the superior covenant in the superior revelation, and so we have the greater obligation to pay attention to it, and we have the greater guilt for ignoring it. This is the argument the author's making in these verses. The Lord Jesus himself uh, made similar statements in Matthew. In Matthew 11, he says, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to, until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And again in Matthew 12, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So in both of these passages from Matthew, the Lord Jesus is saying, something greater is here. There is greater guilt for you in ignoring or refusing the greater revelation, the greater salvation. It's particularly alarming to see the warning he gives concerning Sodom. And we, we remember what happened to Sodom. Genesis 19, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities in all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew out of the ground. And Abraham looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like smoke of the furnace. This was a colossal act of God's judgment against sin. It was total annihilation of those cities and all their inhabitants and all that grew in the valley. Every living thing consumed in fire. And Jesus says to his audience in Matthew, on Judgment Day, it will be easier for Sodom than for you because you're refusing and neglecting the great salvation in front of your face. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Since God flooded the earth in judgment of sin in time of Noah, since God destroyed Sodom in judgment of sin, how will we escape God's wrath on judgment day if we neglect so great a salvation? The implication is that we won't. Moreover, the author underscores the seriousness of neglecting this message by showing where it came from, the source of the message. Verses 3b and 4, it was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. 
while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The author here is pointing out our, our, he's pointing our attention to the source of, of the message, of the new covenant. It came first from the Lord Jesus Christ, and then it was proclaimed or attested by his disciples, while God the Holy Spirit verified and witnessed to the message by distributing supernatural signs that were to authenticate the message as it was delivered. The purpose of these early miracles that he's referring to in this verse, uh, these early signs and wonders, was to bear witness and to validate the message of the gospel as it spread through the first century Middle East uh, following the ascension of our Lord. These signs were intended to say to the audience, this message is real, there's power behind it. God himself is bearing witness to this message. He's not made it unclear or confusing. So to neglect it once we've heard it is to place ourselves in great spiritual danger. As I mentioned in the beginning, uh, this passage that we're looking at this morning is the first of several warning passages in the book of Hebrews. And there are many other throughout the whole Bible, places of, of warning. And in this passage, the author is showing his concern for his readers. You know, there was debate in the, with the theologians on what the book of Hebrews is. What kind of literature is it? Is it an epistle like Corinthians? or what, um, towards the end, the author refers to it as an exhortation. So this is, this is a sermon that he gave to these people. And a sermon, is, it often requires rebuke or reproof and, but, and correction, but also love and encouragement and care and concern. You know, a good pastor, a good elder is going to be a shepherd who loves his sheep and cares for their well-being. Sometimes that means hard words and sometimes that means encouraging words. But I say this, because the author of the book of Hebrews isn't just trying to come down with a hammer on folks. He loves these people, and he's trying to warn them away from danger. He's genuinely worried that some of them will prove to have had no root of true faith in them, and thus fail to be saved in the end. Now, the topic comes up immediately of whether truly regenerate, born-again Christians can lose their salvation. It's, a, it's an important topic. Uh, we talked a lot about it in our last Tuesday night class. Um, but it's often very badly taught, and uh, it's often something which many people fail to grasp or understand correctly. It's so important that uh, I don't want to give it a paragraph. So it's not within the scope of today's message to talk about it too much. But what we can clearly and uncontentiously say is that there are those who make false and empty professions of faith, empty professions of being Christians. People who use the right language, they go through the right motions, but they have no eternal life within them. They are unsaved. And Jesus talked a lot about these kind of folks. Uh, in Matthew 7, Jesus said that there will be many, he said, many who come to him at the end attempting to lean on their false Christianity to save them, and he'll say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. And in 1 John, the Apostle John talks about those who left the church he's writing to, and he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. He says, in other words, they left because they're not us. They're not one of us. If they were one of us, they wouldn't have left. 
they were false professors. Again, the topic at hand isn't whether truly regenerate, born-again Christians can lose their salvation. The topic is rather, don't neglect the gospel, don't turn out to be a false professor, don't be one of those people who hear Jesus' terrifying words on Judgment Day because there will be many. You've heard this question before, this evangelism question. If you were standing at the gates of heaven and God said, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? Well, these folks were saying, did we not do wonderful things in your name? They were leaning on their works. They are saying, look what I've brought to the table to earn my way in. It wasn't enough. But you have to have an answer for that. It's the most important question in all of reality. The true and false professors, and Jesus called them wheat and the weeds, will grow together seemingly indistinguishable. Somebody told me, I think it was Heather, told me that wheat and tares, they look the same when they're, when they're young. You can't tell them apart. And that's kind of the purpose of the parable that Jesus is giving. Like There's weeds sown in with the wheat. We can't tell what they are. But in the end, Jesus says, at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. But he says there's false and true professors. In the end, they're going to be sorted out. So while the Bible, including the book of Hebrews, and we'll get to these passages, has many wonderful truths to declare concerning the doctrine of salvation, the rest that you can have, these dire warnings found in the warning passages of the New Testament are very real and for all of us to consider. One thing that, that the theology nerds love to argue about is whether these warning passages are legit, can be taken seriously by Christians. They will say, some of them will say, you know, well, a Christian can never actually lose their salvation, so what's the point of these passages? It's a very simplistic understanding, as I've alluded to a second ago, but the point and I actually physically underlined it in my notes. These passages are very real, and they're for all of us to consider. In chapter 10 of Hebrews, the author gives a word of comfort, and after that, he gives one of the severest warnings in Scripture, where he says, if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment in a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, that almost sounds like a quote from some Puritan pastor, I don't know, maybe Richard Baxter or Jonathan Edwards, but this is straight from what God's word itself has to say. And this is a strange line too, somebody who has outraged the spirit of grace. We don't often think of the spirit of grace being able to be outraged, but it says it in God's word. So take the warnings of Scripture seriously when you read them. Every book of the Bible was written to God's people to read. And don't be deceived. God is not mocked. You will reap what you sow. That's Galatians 6, 7. Don't give anything else in life 
more care, concern, and diligence than the great salvation declared in God's word. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. Charles Spurgeon, uh, often called the Prince of Preachers, he preached on this passage a long time ago. I don't know the date, it was a long time ago. But in his sermon he said, the punishment for disobeying the word spoken by angels was death. What then must be the penalty for neglecting the great salvation wrought by the divine redeemer himself? He who does not give earnest heed to the gospel treats with disdain the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will have to answer for that sin when the king shall sit upon the throne of judgment. Trifle not, <clears throat> therefore, with that salvation which cost Christ so much, and which he himself brings to you with bleeding hands. If you have until now trifled with it and let it slip, may you now be brought to a better mind, lest by some chance, despising Christ, the just penalty should come upon you. And what will that be? I know of no punishment that could be too severe for the man who treats with contempt the Son of God and tramples on his blood. Every individual who hears the gospel and yet does not receive Christ as his savior is committing that atrocious crime. The first step in this atrocious crime, as Spurgeon put it, is neglect. It's the old coat in the closet. It's the, I'm too busy right now syndrome. It's the, I need my sleep and I'm not gonna set the alarm half hour early. Or there are other things that interest me more in which I find more relevant disease. It's anchoring your boat in the bay and then leaving it for six months and not giving it a second thought. Once anchored, always anchored, right? The neglect of God's great salvation leads to the second step. We drift away. We slowly stop reading the Bible until we can't say we've done it at all in the last month. The same goes for prayer or meditation. We start skipping Sunday morning corporate worship and then we do it more often. And then it becomes that we just don't go at all for months or ever. And where, where are those who are not in a church anymore? Not just this one, but those who aren't anywhere. Now, did they outright deny Christ in their faith or did they just drift away? It's usually just drift. Do they know what serious spiritual danger that they're in? Does anybody love them enough to tell them that they're drifting away and that they're no longer showing the fruit of a believer? Hebrews 3, 12 through 14 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share Christ if... Indeed, we hold our original confidence to the end. That's a passage we look at in this upcoming membership class. But we see what it has to say regarding corporate life, doing this thing together as brothers and sisters in Christ. The passage says, what leads professing Christians to fall away? Those who say that they believe in Christ, but they end up falling away. What does the passage say? They have a heart that is evil and ultimately unbelieving. And how does God tell us to fight the drift so that we don't uh, prove to be one of those false professors? By not neglecting the great salvation of God that made you a member of his body, the church. 
And I, had, I saw some video a long time ago. It was one of those like clickbait kind of things on YouTube. It was talking about a guy doing evangelism. He was getting kicked out of the mall he was in. And security guard said, it was saying, you know, I'm a better Christian than you are. You know, the Bible doesn't say anywhere that you have to go to church. Like, you are the church. What do you mean you don't have to go? You're part of it. You're part of the body. It's like saying, uh, yeah, I'm a finger, but I don't have to be attached to the body. Like, no, there's nowhere that says that, but you kind of realize that if a finger is not attached to a hand, at best, it's unhealthy, and at worst, it's dead and gone. We, we fight this drift, we fight this neglect by being active in a local church family where we exhort each other to good works. This is what the passage says, exhort one another to good works. We, we go and we participate in the body where these exhortations are, and it says we won't be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You understand that phrase? Sin lies to us, and we believe it, and we think it's a great idea, and, so, and the body is, one of the reasons we're part of the body is so that loving brothers and sisters in Christ can point out and say, hey, you're way off the rails here, brother. We believe it, and we, we believe, listen to the lies. We're not above being deceived by sin. In fact, I would say it was safe to say that all of us today at this moment are believing some lie of sin. In fact, every time we sin, we're believing the lie. We're saying, this is better than obeying God. This is going to make me happier than obeying God. There's not going to be any repercussion for this because I'm the only one here doing it. Those are all lies that we believe when we sin. We pay much closer attention to the Word of God, which is being taught and preached but faithfully in God-centered, Christ-preaching church. Again, one of the reasons we preach expositionally, not topically, is because we want to put God's Word first. It's not the word of Hansen that won't return void. It's God's word which won't return void. It's God's word which is going to change your heart. It's God's word with the Holy Spirit acting upon it. It's going to change you, not me. So we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. But you've seen it, haven't you? And probably most of you are thinking of someone who this very thing has happened to at some point in your own Christian experience. They professed Christ, but then they neglected the word. Then they neglected to listening to it, to submitting to it, to obeying it. They stopped listening to the exhortation of their brothers and sisters in Christ, so they were deceived by sin, and their hearts were hardened. And you just wonder, what on earth can reach these people anymore? They drifted. They drifted further. They drifted away. So pray for them and watch yourself. Attend to these things. Pay much closer attention to the word that you've heard because there's a final step after neglect and drift, which is destruction. The final step following neglect and drift is destruction. And this is the warning of today's passage. He says, the author that is, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? There's no escape. And I read it before, but we need to hear it again because this needs to sink in. Hebrews 10, 26 to 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. 
Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved, deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God the Holy Spirit in his word is declaring to us, the readers and the hearers, that if we neglect or disregard the message of the gospel, if we ignore and debase God's word, there is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume us. Neglect leads to drift, which leads to destruction. The boat on the rocks is demolished because of the neglect of the owners. Now, this passage is interestingly placed. One of the commentators I was reading said it was like a, like a parenthesis, because he's talking about Christ's superiority over the angels, hits this passage, and then kind of goes back to it again in verse 5 and following, which will be my, my next passage. So the context, again, is important here. He's giving a warning, a real warning, which we need to consider, but we have to understand why, why is this such a serious warning? Why is it something that uh, is, is something we should take um, with such gravity and such weight? And I said in the beginning that it begins with a therefore, so the therefore is important. The, the warning comes after 14 verses of extolling the supremacy of God's Son in all things. This, he talks about neglecting a great salvation. The salvation is great because we have a great Savior. Now, this isn't the, uh, this isn't the, the, the last word, the, the expectation of, of judgment. As long as you're living, you have the chance to repent. Our story isn't over. As long as they are living, the people that you're praying for who walked away from their faith can repent and return to the Lord. We have a great Savior. The warnings are severe because the revelation is so great. Jesus was there. That was the whole point. That's why it was going to be harder for Capernaum and for Sodom, or uh, for them than Sodom, and why it would be easier for uh, the men of Nineveh than for this generation, because the Redeemer had come in the flesh to do the mission that the Bible promised he would do, to die for our sins on the cross, be raised the, from the dead on the third day, and ascend into heaven to be our high priest, our mediator, and our king. That's why the warning is so severe. Since all of that has happened, since Jesus Christ stood on this earth in a body, how shall we escape such a great salvation? The Messiah has come to redeem his people, and he will come again to gather them and end sin's presence and influence forever, which I don't know about you, but I'm very glad for, because uh, I, I know some of the wickedness in my own heart, but not the own depths of it. Marina could probably tell you more, <laughs> but she won't because she's on salary. Um, I need to write that check, by the way. There's a, I was telling Charlie yesterday that I like some of these older worship songs that we don't do anymore because they're not in vogue, but the, I'm going to borrow the lyrics from one and modify it a little bit. We, we have to remember that the Lord Jesus came from heaven to earth to show us the way. He went from the earth to the cross our debt to pay, from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky, so we'll lift his name on high. Since he has done this, 
since he is supreme in all things, since he is the most beautiful and desirable thing in all of creation, which was created through him and for him, let us pay much closer attention to what we've heard, which is what? That Jesus Christ died to save sinners, of whom the face in the mirror is the foremost. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you for your word, for your truth. We thank you that you are a patient God that is slow to anger. We thank you that you did send your son to bear our burden, to pay our price on the cross. But I pray we would be a transformed people, Lord, an alive and awake people, and people that attend to your word and that know it well, a people spiritually mature enough to know falsehood when we hear it, to love others, to forgive in our hearts those who we are angry with, Lord, to not hold on to bitterness, but to be kind and compassionate to one another as you have been kind and compassionate to us. We pray these things in the name of our beloved King Jesus. Amen.